The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 35, 26-28. Let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. Let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. And my, son, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, again, my name is Tyler, and I am the church planting resident here at Redeemer. So thank you for the opportunity to speak today. I have the privilege of continuing our journey through the Psalms as we look at Psalm 35. And if you've spent any time in the scriptures, you would know what a great and rich blessing we have in the Psalms. They're the very songs of Jesus that meet us really at the daily experiences of life. And in fact, the Psalms provide us with a, with a healthy guide of the types of songs we should sing as a church. Because of the Psalms, we, we regularly worship with songs of celebration and in confession and praise and blessing and thanksgiving, calls for help, requests for forgiveness. We sing about all these things. But you will be hard-pressed to find a song that sounds like Psalm 35. You're not going to hear it on Caleb. You're not going to find it in a hymnal. It's an interesting psalm. In fact, it might make some of us a bit uncomfortable. Parts of it might even seem to stand in opposition to what Jesus has said about praying for our enemies and asking for mercy for them. That's because Psalm 35 was what's called an imprecatory psalm. That's an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is a fancy word for a curse or a judgment. And this Psalm of David is calling on God to judge and fight against those who have brought harm to him, those who bring harm to God's people. Now, we don't know the exact circumstance of Psalm 35. But what we do know is we, we can get glimpses of what happened to David all throughout the psalm. I'm going to give you an overview briefly. In verse 4, these people tried to take David's life. They tried to harm David. They tried to entrap and ensnare him. In verse 11, they lied about David and tried to ruin his reputation. In verse 15, they celebrated when David was hurt. In verses 20 through 21, they're verbally attacking David. So all throughout the psalm, you can see that David has experienced severe attacks from other people. And it wasn't because of anything that he had done. In verses 12 and 13, we see how David had actually tried to do them good. When these people were sick, David prayed for them. It says he fasted and mourned for them when they were in need. But the favor was not returned. Instead, they just attacked him all the more. David wasn't a perfect man, as we all know. But in this situation, David was repaid evil for the good he had done. He was attacked. He was maligned unfairly. 
He was even physically threatened, if not harmed by them. This is heavy stuff. And at first, as you think about this, you might feel, you might feel a bit of a distance between where you're at and where David is. Most of us can't relate to a king experiencing attacks from military and political opponents, right? We can't, we can't relate to that. But I think this psalm applies more broadly than that. Because in this psalm, we see examples of violence, of threats, of slander, of sinful speech, and more. And that's why I think this psalm offers help and hope for Christians who've experienced things like abuse, oppression, mistreatment, all these things. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at how Psalm 35 gives a blueprint for prayer in the midst of abuse. I'll talk about this and I approach this subject knowing there are those in this room who've experienced these things. This is not a, is a conceptual thing for you. This is a real lived experience. And you might feel like your struggles, your pain are often forgotten, neglected, like they just make people feel uncomfortable. But I want you to know that the Bible won't allow that. God sees you. He knows your pain. He cares deeply for you. He will defend you. And others in this room have, by God's grace, been spared from abuse. But you know and you love people who have experienced this kind of mistreatment. And I want you to leave here today better equipped to care for and pray for those who are hurting, those who are alone, those who are desperate for an advocate, for a friend. And in one sense, all Christians can apply these same principles to times of spiritual attack from Satan and from the world around us. So however God's people are under attack, we can know, we can be assured that God sees us and he gives us grace to endure. Now, that being said, while I think this passage can be applied pretty broadly, I want to look at it specifically through the lens of abuse for a few reasons. First, abuse is more common than you might think. It's more common than you might think. Second, it's easy to avoid this topic because it makes us uncomfortable. But the Bible speaks very directly to it, and so I want to as well. And finally, Bible preaching, gospel-centered churches are not immune to failures in the area of abuse. And I want the saints at Redeemer to be equipped to think biblically and compassionately about these issues. Now, I've used the term abuse several times. How am I defining abuse? P part of the, the struggle here is that there's no definition that's going to be an all-encompassing definition that's going to include everything it should. Okay, I know that when I'm saying that. But I want to try to give you some idea of what I mean when I'm using the term. Abuse is any willful and oppressive behavior that seeks to harm another person. It's willful and oppressive behavior that seeks to harm another person. And I think that definition fits very nicely within the psalm. And in the psalm, you can see some of these things, but abuse is often seen in instances of physical violence, threats of violence, sexual mistreatment, sinful speech, misused authority, and many more. Defining abuse can be tricky, but it's not defining abuse that makes it a hard thing to talk about. Abuse has become a lightning rod issue 
in our culture and even the church as we are riddled with accusations of and cases of abuse over and over and over again. For the last few years, headlines and social media have been inundated with women coming forward in the Me Too movement. You've heard of stories of abuse in the Catholic church, closer to home. You may have been aware of the mishandling of abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And some of you may think this is all a bit overplayed. Maybe you're tired of hearing about it. Some of you might think we don't talk about it nearly enough. And statistically, though, in the U.S., one in three women and one in four men have experienced domestic violence or abuse. One in three girls and one in five boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. We could talk about verbal abuse, child abuse, spiritual abuse. The list goes on and on and on. And the point is that in a fallen world that we live in, abuse, mistreatment, oppression, the things in Psalm 35 are all too common. And not every instance is equally severe, but in every single case, this kind of mistreatment is difficult. It's disorienting. And Christians are not exempt from it. So what are we supposed to do? Like, how does God feel about abuse? Psalm 35 gives us much of the answer. It tells us that God knows about it. He cares deeply about when his people or when any people suffer mistreatment and suffer harm. We can see God's heart for the abused all throughout the Bible, not just Psalm 35. And one place that I want to highlight that gives us some helpful hooks to hang things on is actually Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. I'm just going to read it briefly. I think most of you will be familiar with the context. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So along with Exodus 2, Psalm 35 is another reminder that God hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. Psalm 35 is a cry for help in the midst of opposition, abuse, mistreatment, difficulty, struggle. And this prayer, that's what it is, it's a prayer. This prayer is instructive for us as we experience these things, as we face these kinds of trials. That's why I think Psalm 35 is a blueprint for prayer in the midst of abuse. And this blueprint, this guide, it gives us five components of prayer as we seek God's help in these times, through these struggles. The first three focus on how we are to pray. The last two focus on what to pray, what to pray for. And as we go through the psalm, I want to warn you now that the, the structure is different. It's unique. It does not use the same kind of logical flow that we're used to communicating in. So if it looks like we're jumping around a good bit, that's because we are. I am. But I want you to hang with me because the truths in the psalm are beautiful. They're life-giving as we learn how we can approach God in our suffering. 
So we have five components of prayer in the midst of abuse. First, we see that we can pray boldly. We can pray boldly. Look at verses one through three. David begins this psalm with what seems like a list of commands directed to God. He says, oppose, fight, take, come, draw, assure. Here and throughout the entire psalm, David asks, or really he, he tells God what to do. Now David obviously recognizes his proper place before the God of heaven. He's not speaking out of turn. He knows that God is God and that David is just a, a lowly servant But this prayer speaks to the the boldness and the confidence that he felt in bringing his needs to God. And And it serves as a model for us to follow because too often we come to God in prayer for our needs and we act as if God is hesitant to hear them. But those who are in Christ, we don't need to hesitate for a second in bringing our needs to the Lord. In fact, in Christ we can approach God with greater boldness than David ever could. We read this verse this morning, Hebrews 4, 16. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. David felt that. And he came to the Lord directly and confidently with his needs, with his problems. Boldness like this is not a sign of brashness. It's not cockiness. It's not arrogance. Instead, it, it points to a level of closeness and familiarity like, like that of a parent and a child. Parents, think of how your kids ask for stuff. Do they say, Father, Mother, I would like to humbly beseech you for a mere morsel of a snack to fill my empty belly. It would be so kind of you to bless me out of your sheer generosity. If you do, I will bind myself to your service forever. Like, is that how your kids ask for stuff? Kids, is that what you do? No. What do kids do? They shout from the other room, Mom, I'm hungry! Or at two in the morning, Dad, I want some water! Like two in the morning. I can relate to this one. Maybe, now maybe we just need to work on our kids with manners. It's probably part of it, how they ask for stuff. But I like to think, too, that that level of, of boldness, that, that kind of confidence comes, comes from the fact that we're their parents, that we love them, we care for them, we provide for their needs. And, and as frustrating as those 2 a.m. requests slash demands can be, I think it's a sign of trust. It's a sign of love. And I say all that because that's how David talks to God in Psalm 35. He skips all the niceties. He skips the flowery words and language. And he just says, God, oppose them. Fight them. Pick up your shields. And there's an obvious lesson here about the kind of boldness that God invites us to have in approaching him with our deepest needs. And particularly... For those who've experienced this kind of pain, mistreatment, and abuse, the Lord extends to you this kind of invitation to boldly approach him. You can go to God in your darkest moments and seek help right then, right there. 
And because of your experience, you may have been trained to walk on eggshells around other people when you're approaching them. But there is no need to tiptoe around God. And you will never find him distracted when you come to him. You'll never interrupt him. You will never call his name at two in the morning and see some groggy, frustrated God stumble into your room. He's always ready for us to approach him boldly. He's ready. He is willing to do this. We can approach him boldly as a child who comes to a parent because of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. But we also see another important component of prayer in the psalm. We can pray boldly. We can also pray honestly. You can pray honestly. Look first at how David prays in verse 17. Lord, how long will you look on? David asks God, how long are you going to watch me struggle? How long are you going to allow this to keep going on? And in suffering, especially at the hands of other people, it can seem like it's just dragging on forever and ever. And it feels like the pain, the hurt is never going to go away. David knew, like he knew that God was there, but he still asked God how long this was going to happen. He asked God when he was going to do something about it. He was being honest with how he felt. We see it again in verses 22 through 23. David told God to not be silent, to not be far away. Because he said that, because he felt like God was silent. He felt like God was far away. He said, wake up, rise to my defense. David knew God wasn't asleep, but that's how it felt. That's how it can feel when these abuses, when this kind of hurt happens. And at times, we can, and we can all relate to this, it's hard to rectify what we know to be true of God in our minds, like we know this is true, but what our circumstances teach us about God. And we ask those how long questions. And those questions, those how long questions can eat us up when they stay inside of us. When we just stew on those questions internally, when we ask ourselves those questions, they can begin to break down our faith in God. Slowly but surely, our hope in God's wisdom, his sovereignty, his love can just dissipate, can be eaten away. But you take that same question, that same how long question, that same fear, even about God, and you bring it to God in prayer, he honors it. He accepts it. When David did it, God honored it by including it in the pages of Scripture. God is able to handle your questions. He's able to handle your fears. Coming to the Lord with this kind of honesty doesn't show a lack of faith. It shows the presence of faith. There is such a thing as faithless questioning, for sure, but there's also such a thing as faith-filled questioning. For a biblical example, look at the differences between Mary and Zechariah when they both heard the news of the promise of a son. Zechariah questioned God after the angel told him that he was going to have a son. And he said, how can these things be? And God answered that question by taking away his ability to speak until the baby was born. 
God judged Zechariah for his questioning heart. But then Mary, Mary's told that she, a virgin, is going to give birth to the Messiah. It's like bigger things here. And she asked the same question, like same words. How can these things be? But God answers her by giving her more details. He commends her faith. It's the same question, but different hearts. Mary's honest question was seen as a sign of faith, not a lack of it. And in this psalm, we see, see this again. We see the place for honest and humble questioning. And God invites you to come to him as you are in your pain, with your questions, with your complaints, in the darkest moments of your life. You can go to God with real, honest, tearful prayers, knowing that the Lord's going to hear you. He's going to help you. This psalm shows us that in abuse and mistreatment, we can pray boldly, we can pray honestly, but we can also pray hopefully. Pray hopefully. So we see David ex- expressing deep hurt and fear, but also an existing, a real and vibrant hope at the same time. The first instance can be seen in verses 9 through 10. He says, Then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, rescuing the poor from one who's too strong for him, the poor or the needy from one who robs him. So David just got finished praying for deliverance for himself and judgment on those attacking him. But he gives us a glimpse of hope. And this is the hope that continues to sustain him. And it's a, it's a hope, it's a confidence, it's a resolve. Like, I will rejoice. I will delight. My bones, my spirit will say these things. See, for David, even though his enemies are strong, even though he's feeling poor and needy, even though the days are dark, David's faith in the Lord lingers on. And why is that? It's not because of David's strength and resolve. It's not. He admits as much right here. He said he's weak. He's poor. He's needy. He's broke. But in the Lord, he's found a refuge. He's found a friend. He's found a God that can be trusted. And he knows that in the midst of the abuse, of the pain, that he can rejoice and delight in God's deliverance, even though it hasn't even come yet. He's got that much confidence in God. And it's not David who's the hero. It's God and his strength and his mercy. David felt this truth. It says in his bones that there is nobody like God. He didn't allow the strength of his enemies to blind him to the power and the might of the Lord. And even as his enemies, his attackers, loomed large in his mind, he had a sure hope that God was bigger, God was better. We see another instance of this hope in verse 18. Right after David asks that how long question, he expresses confidence that one day God's going to step in to rescue. In verse 18, he says, I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. So that this hope in the Lord sustained his worship of the Lord. And this is really, really important for us to remember we're in the, we're, when we're in the midst of this kind of, of pain and mistreatment. Because you might feel like the, the darkness is so thick, the light's never going to come. 
But God promises that he's not going to leave you there because he rescues the poor and needy. His goodness, his greatness extends to us in our lowest state so that we can still praise him. You can have hope. And you can have that hope. He showed you that because he sent Jesus to come down to our place. Jesus took on lowly flesh, becoming poor and weak and needy in the eyes of this world so that we could have hope that we're not alone, that we're not forgotten, that we're not neglected in our suffering. So be careful that, that, that your pain, that this abuse doesn't make you cynical, that it doesn't make you hopeless and withdrawn from God or withdrawn from other people. Because it's so easy just to draw back, to seclude ourselves from other people when we're in pain. And this psalm invites you to pray for the hope that would push you closer to him, closer to other people. And with that, though, you might feel like other people can't really relate to what you've gone through. And that very well may be the case. But remember that it is not your experience, it's not your pain that ultimately unites you and connects you with other believers. What is it? It's Jesus. Jesus connects you with others. You can have that hope that Christ himself will unite you and help you. And because of this hope, David commits to praising God in the assembly with other people. He commits to exalt him among many people. And you can't do that by yourself. And in fact, your hope in God, in your darkness, might be the very thing that gives light to other people so that they can see God, God's ability to hear them, to help them, to heal them. And even in this kind of pain, maybe especially in pain, we can praise God in the great assembly and exalt him among many nations. So because of our faithful God, we can pray boldly and honestly while still maintaining hope. But this psalm doesn't only show us how we can pray. It shows us what we can pray for when we're experiencing hurt from the hands of other people. And now we really get to the heart of the entire psalm. So what should we pray for in abuse? Pray for justice. Pray for justice. We see here that God draws near to comfort, to help, to heal, to rescue people who are being oppressed, abused, mistreated. But he also comes near, he draws near to judge and punish the abuser. Look at verses four through eight. David prays that those who seek to take his life would be disgraced, would be humiliated. He prays for them to be turned back, to be ashamed. He then prays in verse five that they'd be like chaff in the wind. This is reminiscent of the ungodly in Psalm 1. Chaff is the outer husk of a grain of wheat, and it's useless, it's empty. Farmers would, would sift the grain to get the chaff to separate from the grain. You could throw it in the air, and the good grain would drop down, and the chaff, because it was useless and empty, would just float away in the wind. That's what David prays would happen to his attackers, to his enemies. And he closes this section, verse 8, a praying that they would come to ruin, 
that ruin would come on them unexpectedly, that they would fall into the very same trap that they'd laid down for David. And this is really the prayer of most of the psalm. It's repeated. And it raises a handful of questions for us. Is this kind of prayer mean-spirited? Is it vindictive? Is David wrong? How does this mess with Jesus' commands to love your enemies, to pray for them, to forgive them? And really fundamentally, can we, should we pray like this? First, there's no reason to believe that David was wrong in this kind of prayer. I mean, it's included in the Psalms, and even the language David uses has a level of confidence where he believed that God heard him, that God would answer him. David rightly assumes that God cares about this kind of pain these struggles as much as David does. Also, we see in this psalm and really the entire Bible that God is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. Now, justice is another way of talking about God's standard of what's right and what's wrong. And one of the many reasons our society struggles to talk and really have a consistent ethic on justice is there's virtually no agreed-upon standard of right and wrong. And we're often not right. That standard just changes from person to person, from age to age. We live in in an era in which you're encouraged just to live by your own individual truth. You do you. So what's right and what's wrong can seem to morph and evolve over time. But the Bible tells us very clearly what the standard is. The standard for justice, the standard for right and wrong is God himself. Good things are good because they rightly align with God and his character and his person. Bad things are bad because they don't rightly align with God. And that means that true justice never changes. The application can shift and change over time, but the principle, justice, never changes because God never changes. And that also means that to know justice, we must know God, because he's the standard. And this goes back to the very reason we were created. God created everyone and everything for his glory. He created us to know him. He created us to know his goodness, his holiness, his honor, his majesty, his power. But in our sin, we fall short. In our sin, we we live in ways that don't rightly reflect God's righteousness, God's justice, his standard. And since God is always righteous, since God is always just, he must deal with injustice. God is too holy to merely sweep sin, to sweep wickedness under the rug and act like it never happened. And this really gets to the heart of the psalm about God's dealing with justice. God, God's justice blesses righteousness and it punishes unrighteousness. So when David asks for God to deal out justice to his enemies, David wasn't asking for something off the wall. He wasn't asking for something weird. David was asking for exactly what God has always been going after. This wasn't just vengeance. It wasn't retaliation on David's part. David wasn't just trying to get back at people to make them hurt like he hurt. He was asking for God to respond in a way that showed the world how God felt about sin to really show everyone God's character, God's person. 
That's why in verse 24, David could say, vindicate me, Lord, in keeping with your righteousness. David was not ultimately appealing to his own righteousness. He was appealing to God's righteousness. So David's prayer was right. So how do we still pray for our enemies like Jesus commanded? Do we, do we still do that? Of course we do, right? If you've suffered some of the abuse that we've talked about, more than likely, though, it's been from somebody you know, from somebody you've trusted at some point. That certainly seemed to be the case with David. And that might mean that you still care deeply for this person in a very meaningful way, which, which leads to confusing thoughts, conflicting feelings around all of this. But like the psalm says, you can pray that they would be ashamed, that they would be brought low. You can pray that God would show them the error of their ways, but you can also pray that God would do that now in this life so that they would see that there's a greater judgment coming. You can pray that God will bring them low now so that they might be led to repentance, to faith in Christ that would last forever. Because the worst thing that God can do for a sinner is to blind them from their sin. So your prayer for justice for an abuser might very well be God's severe mercy to them to bring them low, to bring them to a place of humiliation if it helps them see the true nature of their sin. We also know that those who remain blind to their sin and refuse to repent will suffer humiliation and shame in this life, but even more so in the life to come. Like whatever disgrace, whatever shame experienced now is nothing compared to experiencing the never-ending wrath of a holy God. And that is the judgment that awaits those who practice this kind of wickedness, this kind of sin, this kind of mistreatment. And I want to issue just a brief warning. If you're in this room and you're in the place of the abuser, you are bringing, you're actively bringing on hurt and mistreatment to other people, you need to listen up. Like God knows. God sees it. He is not pleased. He will bring justice. But it is not just in the, in the judgment of the abuser that we see God's heart for justice. We see God's heart for justice most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ. The Father sent his own Son to stand in the place of unjust and wicked sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life. He had perfect righteousness so that he might die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, for unjust people. God proved his commitment to justice by administering justice to his very own son. It was God's commitment to justice, his commitment to righteousness, to righting wrongs that led him to send Jesus to the cross for the very worst of sinners. So for those who've experienced abuse, experienced mistreatment, know that God cares so much about justice that he killed his own son to achieve it. He is that committed to making the wrong things right. But this is where it's not just abusers. It's not just those people who need this. Every single person in this room needs to see that we are all sufferers of injustice to varying degrees. That's all of us. We're all sufferers. 
We're also sinners. We are practicers of injustice. And as sinners, our greatest need isn't mere justice for the sins of other people against us. It's grace and mercy for our sins against a holy God. And he offers you this mercy through Jesus. So trust in him. Run to him. Cling to him today. In our suffering, we find Jesus waiting to offer grace, to offer help in our time of need. And in our sin, we find Jesus waiting to offer forgiveness for our sin, relief from the justice that we deserve. But why is God so passionate about justice? Why should we care about justice? Why should we care about this psalm? Because the ultimate end of justice is the glory of God. So as we pray in the midst of abuse for God to do what is right, for God to do justice, we should also pray that God will be glorified. Pray for God's glory. Look at how the psalm closes in verses 27 through 28. Throughout the psalm, maybe you've noticed lots of requests starting with let those, followed by some explanation, description of his attackers. Lots of let those in here. But now it changes subjects. Now it's let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. And my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. So like with all of life, our main, our primary motivation in all of this, in this kind of prayer, should be the glory of God. Abuse, mistreatment are wrong, period, right? They, they hurt everybody involved. But God is able to redeem that suffering, to redeem that pain, to bring us healing, to bring us relief, but also to bring himself glory. And David prays that those who are looking at this situation, that they would see God's work in David and that they would shout for joy. He prays that they would exalt God's kindness and how he cares for his own. God is worthy of honor and praise and glory and exaltation for how he takes pleasure in his servants. This matters because it gives, it gives us God's own motivation in pursuing justice. He is motivated by a passion for his glory. And that's the reason everything exists. So that means that we can pray with confidence knowing that we're asking for God to do what he's been doing and will do for all eternity. We're asking for God to show the world his greatness, his goodness. God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. He is glorified in rescuing the needy. He is glorified in judging the wicked. Salvation and judgment are just two sides of the same coin, and God is glorified in all of it. So this passage, it gives us a helpful picture of God as the great judge of all creation. And David knew that God cared about his injustice that he was experiencing. But ultimately, David's prayer points forward to the experience of another sufferer. David's experience points forward to Jesus, who understands what it's like to experience abuse, 
mistreatment, pain, persecution from the hands of sinners. Jesus prayed. He wept for Jerusalem. And then they all turned their backs on him. He washed the feet of Judas, only to be betrayed by Judas that same night. But that same evening, the same evening where that happened, Jesus quotes Psalm 35, verse 19, about how they have hated me without cause. He was predicting the persecution that would come to his followers. He was talking about how the world has hated him, how he's been mistreated. And then he applies this psalm to himself as the ultimate sufferer, the ultimate mistreated one. So both the pain and the praise of Psalm 35 find their fulfillment in Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that there has never been someone who deserves suffering less than Jesus? But he did so. He, he, he bore that. He took that so that in part he could provide help and healing for us in our suffering, in our abuse. So don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep trusting. And know that there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day when Jesus returns and he will right every wrong. He will bind every wound. He will crush every foe. And on that day, the floodgates of God's justice will break open and the earth will be filled with the righteousness and the goodness of the Lord. Until then... God invites you to come to him. He invites you to pray boldly, honestly, hopefully. He invites you to pray for justice, to pray for his glory in it all. And you can do so knowing that your case before the God of justice is heard. And it will be dealt with in his way, in his time, for his glory. So pray, let's pray that we might believe these things and that we might offer this hope to those who are hurting. Father, we come to you, many of us with heavy hearts as we hear a sermon on this and as we think about our own history and, and pain. I pray that you would bring healing to those of us this morning. But Lord, we also, every single one of us, has to face our own injustice and sin. And so we come to you and all of these circumstances needing the same thing. We need Jesus. We come to you pleading the blood of Christ. So I pray that as we take communion, as we drink the blood of Christ, as we drink this cup, take this bread of his broken body, that you would bring healing and hope and help to needy sinners. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.